Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm Adam B. Levine, creator of the show and most recently an editor at Coindesk. And this is episode 426. Today on the show, we'll dig into the evolution of Bitcoin taxes in the U.S. with the Virtual Currency Fairness Act of 2020, a new question from the IRS about crypto holdings, and Democratic presidential hopeful Andrew Yang's proposed digital asset regulation. Associate producer Don put together this segment for us. Later, we'll be digging into scams, but not necessarily crypto. It turns out that in many new technologies, innovations, or opportunities, there's a period of time, just about 10 years, where the public at large is at risk, and often increasingly so of being taken advantage of by opportunistic scammers who understand this new state of things well enough to use it to their advantage and for their benefit. Associate producer Ned put together that segment. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by eToro, Brave.com, and Purse.io. You can find new episodes on Coindesk.com, on letstalkbitcoin.com at the LTB Network, and of course at ltbshow.com where we manage our own feed. Today, we're joined by the other hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Dr. Stephanie Murphy, early podcaster and early Bitcoiner. Hi there, Adam. Hi, Stephanie. And the one and only Jonathan Mohan. <laughs> hey, hey. Andreas Antonopoulos is out for today's session. Thanks to everyone for being here and to you, the listeners, for sitting in with us. I have done almost nothing in the space that involves incurring anything to do with taxes for like two years because I have basically PTSD from the 2017, 2016 year. And probably about half the people I talk to have very similar stories, right? Where you think that you won, but then you have to pay taxes on it. And the way that the taxes wind up falling is just so onerous. Andreas has talked about kind of the cost of each transaction from a tax reporting standpoint. And there's just so many levels that the way that we do things in the United States doesn't make any sense and is just, in general, incredibly frustrating and incredibly frictiony to actually be able to even use this stuff. Let's Talk Bitcoin historically has paid all of our contractors using Bitcoin. And most recently, Stephanie, you and I worked together and we were like, well, it's actually easier in this particular circumstance if we do something via the old system, just because of kind of how <laughs> complex it was. Yeah, exactly. That was kind of ridiculous, but that was what made sense for us to do. You were paying me for a voiceover, which is what I do as my business. And it just made more sense for us to use the traditional banking system, even though we also encountered problems with that. Oh, man. So, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah, seriously, standing in the bank, like for the second attempt to do a wire transfer and like you gave me the numbers for your bank. And then when my bank looked it up, the numbers didn't exactly match because the name was different and the address was like down the street from the one that you'd given me. And so while the process on cryptocurrency is easy, the tax reporting is often really challenging. And so that's what we wanted to talk about today. It's been this way for just years and years and years in the space. And there are a couple of initiatives out there right now, whether or not they actually become laws an entirely different matter, that are looking to resolve some of these issues. So one of the things I think that's probably most important is the Virtual Currency Tax Fairness Act of 2020. In short, this proposed legislation basically exempts capital gains tax from any individual transaction if the capital gains is $200 or less. This proposed is the cup of coffee bill. The idea, I think, is so that you don't have this onerous burden of reporting a small transaction such as buying a cup of coffee or something that's going to create hundreds of dollars in compliance costs over the course of a year for your accountant to put together a spreadsheet of all the capital gains on those little transactions. Right. Especially as we get into a world that's increasingly powered by things like lightning transactions, where you really can have these microtransaction type use cases 
the tax burden that comes along with that is either something that we have to fix at this kind of regulatory level, you know, which is what this Virtual Currency Fairness Act of 2020 is aiming to do, or we have to fix it at the wallet level and basically make it so that, well, if this is the way it is, then your wallet needs to be tracking all of this information for you and effectively making it as easy as possible for you to report. Because without one of those two solutions, I just think in practice, the amount of friction and the amount of potential risk that you expose yourself to by using this stuff is really, really substantial in the United States. In the United States is the key word, though. This is a first world problem, essentially. (laughs) There are lots of people around the world, and I think I'm channeling Andreas here. This is what he would say probably if he was here, is that there's the other six billion to worry about who don't even have a bank account. And a lot of them are participating in System D, which is the unregulated economy. The unofficial economy, really. The unofficial economy. Yes, thank you. And for them, it's not really a concern hiring an accountant or paying taxes. They're just trying to survive and some of them in the midst of currency collapses in their home countries. And so they're not thinking about this. We in the United States have this problem because we have a relatively good, luxurious life compared to other people around the world. So that's something that I think is always important to keep in perspective. But if all of the wallets sort of alter their user interface in order to accommodate taxation, maybe that's not relevant for some users. Maybe they're going to lose out on certain users around the world. Or maybe it's just going to be so costly for them to make those implementations that they'll give up on development or they'll decide that they don't want to do this anymore. I don't know. Just users in general. I think that, Adam, you've been a very good boy and you've been reporting all of your (laughs) transactions, right? But some people, it's so complicated and so onerous for them that they give up. They throw up their hands and they say, oh, I can't figure this out. I'm not even going to bother trying. Come at me, (laughs) right? (laughs) And it's important to note that all this is happening at a time when the IRS is performing less audits and less sort of invasive things than really they have at any other point in their history. I was reading an article about this a couple of weeks ago, and they're sending out what are effectively not audits, but they're just like, here's this thing that we think that you did wrong. And then if you don't respond to it, then they just bill you for the difference. And you can fight Mm. it. That's the thing that they're doing because they haven't been getting the funding that they had in years past. And they aren't doing as many audits of kind of larger, more complex accounts as well. So I imagine a lot of crypto people fall into that. Whether that remains the standard is entirely a different question, right? Because all it takes is a change of policy for suddenly that trend to reverse and go the other direction hardcore. And there is money in crypto, clearly. But whether you're talking about the people who are subject to these regulations or you're talking about people who are supposed to be enforcing these regulations, neither side is having a good time here. Right. This is a smart move for the government if they were to pass this and exempt these small transactions. This would probably get them more money in the long run because every time you increase the costs of compliance, you lose some people who it's just too complicated or too annoying for them to comply. And so they just go by without complying. And so if you make it easier, you're going to get more people who actually do follow the rules. I think that what you're saying is correct, Stephanie. But the other side of this is true, too, which is that I bet you there are a large number of people, and I certainly count myself among this number, who look at this problem and they say, okay, well, my choice is to have this crazy onerous load or to just not use cryptocurrency in that fashion now, since that isn't really the way that people are using it across most of the ecosystem anyways. I find that the lack of these types of exemptions and the lack of these types of rules makes it so that I am not compelled to use it because the cost goes beyond the cost of the transaction. And it's not even a monetary cost. It's just like, I have to think about this cost. I have to remember this. I have to write this down. I have to keep stuff. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, it's too much under most circumstances. So getting back to the topic at hand. So the proposed legislation is, as you said, intended to make it so that that kind of transactional use case where you're not, you know, selling an investment, you're literally just spending something that is money that is treated like every other time you spend something like it's money. This is not a problem if you're using a credit card, right? So it's a completely artificial problem to put on top of Bitcoin and stuff like that. But again, it's not necessarily something that's been put there so much as it's the standard that doesn't really work being applied to something that it doesn't really apply to. But for our purposes, it still is as painful as possible. I find taxes to be a conversation that is not fun in any regard. I find that this space is one that gets more complicated, not on the side of cryptography, but on the side of how the government treats it. And so I find Adam's experience to be a true one. And I think it's pretty interesting if you look at the history of credit cards and how sort of 
the ease of being able to file actually increases the capacity for the government to recover taxes. I do think that any sort of amelioration of the over-onerous nature of the current status quo is going to be a great improvement, but I don't really have much to add to the combo. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is this like a Laffer curve situation? That's this idea that like when the government decreases taxes, they actually make more money because it stimulates economic activity. It was something that was proposed by kind of like conservative economists in the 1980s. And the guy who made it up was Laffer, obviously. And basically, he was trying to say that there's this curve or there's this trade-off between if the government raises taxes too high, people will leave the country or they'll find a way around it or they'll just shut down their business. And so the government will end up raking in less money if the taxes are too high. And if they actually decrease it, they could see an increase in their revenues. Right. Basically, it's a kind of argument in favor of diminishing returns because the government, if they charge a very, very, very small percentage of someone's income, well, then that person doesn't have a disincentive to earn that income, right? Because they're keeping almost all of it. And so like there's a gain to be had where the government can increase the taxation rate, but only up to a certain point. And after that certain point, you get effectively diminishing returns where because of the amount that has to be paid in taxes, the argument in favor of actually even earning that money goes down, right? Why would you do all of this work to earn extra money and only to be taxed at it at this high rate? There are different ways that people deal with this. Some people earn less money. Some people take greater steps to protect it from taxes in one way or another. And in practice, Mm -hmm. what you see is that the people who have a lot of resources and who have the higher incomes are really incentivized to take a fraction of the amount of money that the government would be taxing them and instead spend it on very specialized lawyers who find loopholes to then get through that. That's kind of the argument in favor there. I don't know if that necessarily applies in this particular situation. Yeah, but it reminded me of it. It's not exactly the same thing. It's more like not decreasing the tax rate to increase revenues, but decreasing the cost of compliance to get more people to comply. (laughs) Yeah, no, certainly I think that that is the case, is that if you have a low barrier to compliance and a low barrier to being compliant, then you're much more likely to see people doing that. And I think that the other side of this that relates to the Laffer curve, or at least something like it, as we're talking about. I would say you can call it the Murphy curve, but I don't want to be known for a tax thing. So just. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fair enough. How about the Murphy curve is the rate at which people spend less Bitcoin and cryptocurrency because the complexity of reporting it for compliance and taxes goes up. (laughs) I think that that's a real thing. And that's definitely what Jonathan and I were just talking about. All right. So getting back to the Virtual Currency Tax Fairness Act, it would be great if something like this passed. I think that especially with kind of all of the attention that's being paid to lightning, something like this has to happen because otherwise we are, as I said earlier in the segment, going to see this have to be necessarily pushed into the wallets. And it's not that wallets can't do it. It's just that it's such a huge distraction that's completely unnecessary were it not for these dumb rules. And one other thing that's worth noting is that we've actually already seen this kind of trend happen. Stephanie, you mentioned that for companies that don't necessarily want to focus on the U.S. market, this is a gigantic distraction. There's Mm -hmm. no reason to put it in your wallet if most of your customers are not based in the U.S. I think that we've seen something very similar to that over the last couple of years in the exchange market. Because it used to be that Binance was here and, you know, all of the exchanges, and they were also in the rest of the world. And in practice, what we've seen more recently is companies really kind of picking and spinning off specific versions of themselves that have a much more limited selection of tokens and much stricter rules and much stricter KYC for the American market. And then everywhere else, well, it's just the same thing as it kind of ever was. Again, that's a thing that we're at risk here is wallets starting to differentiate between this is a kind of very tax heavy and therefore they need this sort of compliance built into the wallet versus people who are just like, hey, it's Bitcoin. Come on now. (laughs) The thing it reminds me the most of is not even necessarily the burden around it or the costs associated with it, but it's the hassle and how it disproportionately affects the middle class and poor versus the rich because they're doing it anyway. And so the thing that it reminds me most of is, and I don't know if this was countrywide or just New York City, but a couple of years ago, like 10, 15 years ago, they decided to exempt more and more things from sales tax. So it was like, if you're buying clothing of under $110, I believe it was, then you no longer pay sales tax. If you're doing this, you no longer pay sales tax. And I think that when you look at what the blockchain equivalent of that is and how we need to transition to it, it's like there are necessities that are de minimis and the rules, permission structures, and also the cost around it are actually the problem and not really assistive. 
And so in the same way that we have these like de minimis thresholds for basket of living things that are written off from sales tax, this is sort of the equivalent. And I think it's very strongly needed in the exact same way that that argument won the day in that context. Yeah, this is trying to prevent the tax from becoming super regressive because it does actually affect people who are lower middle class because they're not paying lawyers anyway to deal with their capital gains transactions, right? They wouldn't have this if they weren't using virtual currency. I mean, there are basically three categories of humans that the government messes with, and that's people who can file an easy 1099 for nothing. There's people who pay someone else to do it. And then there's people who basically get away with whatever they want. <laughs> and the step function is kind of exponential in cost, hassle, and worry. And so the, hey, do you want to go from filing you know, an easy 1099 that is something you file for free online for 10 bucks to the next rung is so beyond the capacity for almost every American that it just becomes insurmountable. So as we've been discussing, it would be really good if something like this did come into effect. If this particular version of the law, which is House Resolution 5635, the Virtual Currency Tax Fairness Act of 2020, if it does pass, it will take effect in the 2020 tax year based on the current text. So if it does happen, then we'll be able to kind of see what the difference is next year. So let's cross our fingers and call our Congress critters. (laughs) Okay. All right. So there's another thing that's happening this year on the 2019 form. Basically, it says tax filers in the U.S. are being asked if, quote, at any time during 2019, did you receive, sell, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any virtual currency? This is a new question this year. And it's got a lot of people kind of wondering, what do I do? (laughs) Because like, I think there's an obvious, although perhaps not actual risk in saying yes to that question. It's like using PGP on the internet. It identifies you as somebody who is within this small subset of users who probably is more interesting to the government than if you had said no to that question. Right. It's almost like being asked, have you ever in your life lied? You know, (laughs) what do you say? If you say yes, you're obviously going to get in some kind of trouble. If you say no, then you're obviously lying when you answer the question. So (laughs) what do you do with that? You know, I'm reading this book right now about boundaries. It's really wonderful. Boundaries are like the psychological things we put in place to keep our integrity, to keep out harmful things and keep in good things. And questions like these just, it feels like a boundary violation. You know, it's just like, it's none of your business, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, trust me, if I have something to pay taxes on, I'm going to do it. You're supposed to do that anyway. Why do they need to know if you had anything to do with cryptocurrency? Don't they already know that? If you have an account on any exchange, you're going to be reported to the government anyway. Yeah, it feels like a gotcha question. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. It feels like a trap. One of the interesting things about it is that the way that it's worded is at any time during 2019. So there actually is a potentially no answer for people who hold cryptocurrency Yeah, as long as you were not touching it at all during 2019. (laughs) Well, I mean, you can touch it. You just can't touch it with your hands, right? (laughs) I suppose if you had some cryptocurrency that you acquired before 2019, and the only thing you did was move it from one wallet to another in 2019, you could answer no to that question. You didn't sell any, you didn't acquire it, you didn't, whatever else they listed, right? Yeah, it's sell, receive, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any virtual currency. And there's another point there that's worth mentioning. Virtual currency does not just refer to cryptocurrency. Virtual currency also refers to things like World of Warcraft gold and in-game tokenized things that oh. do not have any sort of blockchain tieback. So there's about, also like, that credit card points too. or reward like Amazon. Oh God, that's a credit. good point too. Yeah, is that virtual currency? I think and what it do they is. Mean I believe the way they've been defining it, it is. We'll have to do an error check before this All right, goes I'm out. I'm checking yeah. yes, and I hope everyone else does too, because then it's like if everyone says yes, then. <laughs> It's not as small of a list. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure we're already all on a list anyway. So, well, yeah, I definitely. Don't know. We're all on a list, anyways. Yeah. I think by nature of having been in the space for as long as you have, you know, and being a US citizen, you kind of wind up on those lists pretty quick. So, I mean, it just means you got to be compliant, but that's life, isn't it? So, on that note, one of the things that's been frustrating over the last number of years is how little the kind of political establishment seems to get what's going on. Or if they do get what's going on, it seems to be very much taken as a threat rather than as an opportunity. Presidential, let's call him hopeful, he's probably not going to be the candidate on the Democratic side, but he's at least gotten people kind of excited and talking about a couple of his ideas. 
one of the things that he's brought up is the idea of really creating digital asset regulation and making it such that it's clear and it's predictable, right? And you can actually start to build real legal companies on top of that sort of understanding, as opposed to the space right now where it's like, you can build an exchange if you go through all the hoops, but there are a lot of barriers and a lot of agencies and a lot of laws that impact cryptocurrency or crypto projects in one way or another. And it's very, very, very much a giant barrier to actually getting anything productive done. I'm going to read from the kind of policy statement on Yang 2020. So on their page for crypto slash digital asset regulation and consumer protection, cryptocurrencies and digital assets have quickly grown to represent a large amount of value in economic activity. This quick growth, however, has outstripped the government's response. A national framework for regulating these assets has failed to emerge with several federal agencies claiming conflicting jurisdictions. At the same time, states have come up with a patchwork of varying regulations that make it difficult for the U.S. cryptocurrency market to compete with those in other jurisdictions, especially China and Europe. Currently, different departments of the federal government consider digital assets as property, commodities, or securities. Some states have onerous regulations in the space, such as New York's bit license. Navigating this has had a chilling effect on the U.S. digital asset market. It's time for the federal government to create clear guidelines as to how cryptocurrencies and digital asset markets will be treated and regulated so that investment can proceed with all relevant information. I was waiting for the part where he wants to pay everybody a universal basic income in wow. cryptocurrency, right? <laughs> yeah, he does seem to end almost every talk with kind of a focus on that side. But I mean, that's sort of the populist element of all of this. Again, frankly, just as far as a politician actually espousing a position in terms of how we should realistically as a country be viewing this opportunity, this is the most cogent statement I think I've seen from anybody on either side of the aisle in the entire time we've been in the space. Yeah. I guess I agree. It's just sort of hard for me to get excited about government regulations. In Who's any excited way? about it? I mean, like, let's be clear. Nobody's excited about this. It's one of those things. We're not looking for a good solution. We're looking for a less dumb solution, right? If we went from 100% dumb to only 20% dumb, that's a victory. I don't know. I mean, Bitcoin was born without any permission or regulation, and it can exist with no regulatory framework at all. It has up to this point. It has a regulatory framework. It's just one enforced by consensus and not violence or intimidation. It's a very crazy and misunderstood method of social formation that people think cannot work and yet does. It's great to hear less crazy coming from those who seek power. That's always a great thing. But I find that the ones to whom have the least ability to succeed are the ones who seem to talk the most amount of sense because they have the least to lose in order to speak the truth. And so I'm excited that there are politicians that sound less crazy than the ones who exist currently. But it would be interesting if politicians who are saying things that sound reasonable continue to enforce or state things that sound reasonable as they get closer and closer to being able to actually do what they say they can do. There seems to be a very high correlative function between the inability to achieve what you say you're going to do and your ability to actually understand what you're talking about and say what actually makes sense. And the people who are capable of saying things that are true and make sense seem to magically forget what they previously understood as they then get the power to do something about it. <laughs> so yeah. I think the whole experience in Bitcoin is the understanding of that sort of co-correlation and the understanding that the only way to succeed is to sort of not participate within it. But it's cool that there's a little bit of light in the tunnel of crazy that's going to be the next 11 months of our life. I'm going to characterize our enthusiasm for all of these things as tepid. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you could say hey, that. I'm still waiting on Let's Talk Bitcoin to be illegal in India. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an interesting story. We'll talk about another time. That would validate our t-shirt, right? <laughs> Banned in India, hashtag. Well, it has a question mark on it, actually. Banned in India, question mark, was oh, right. what the t-shirt said. <laughs> Well, okay. you see, the best kind of criminal is the one to whom is only sure that they're a criminal after the government has informed them that they always were a criminal. <laughs> it's the Al Capone <laughs> model of everyone's a criminal. You just have yet to tell them what the crime is. What if there was a better user experience for browsing the Internet? A way to take back your online privacy, prevent creepy ads from tracking you all around the Internet, save on battery life and data, what if it was easy to switch to and completely free to download? And it even had a built-in option to support your favorite content creators while doing your normal online activities. Well, now there is a better user experience for browsing the internet. Brave is the web browser reimagined. 
it gives you unmatched speed, security, and privacy. And Brave even allows you to opt in to earn rewards, which you can use to support your favorite content creators. Go to brave.com slash LTB and switch to Brave today. It's super easy to switch to Brave, and Brave is free to download and use. Give it a try. That's brave.com slash LTB. Brave.com slash LTB. We'd like to thank eToro for sponsoring this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Why use eToro? eToro is a large, well-established U.S.-regulated trading platform that has over a trillion dollars of trading volume on the platform per year. eToro offers powerful trading tools made simple. You can create a diverse crypto portfolio, get access to smart charts and analysis on every asset, and eToro also has social features and the opportunity to practice and learn with a virtual trading mode eToro offers low spreads, no commissions, and no hidden fees. Why wait? Getting started takes just minutes at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Crypto assets are volatile, and trading them carries risk. Please trade responsibly. So Stephanie, you mentioned that Bitcoin kind of doesn't have this sort of regulatory framework or doesn't think about it like that. And Jonathan, you mentioned that Bitcoin does. It's just kind of like a programmatic and automatic framework that doesn't really involve any sort of human judgment. It was kind of set in motion early on. And now, again, we can upgrade consensus and things like that, but it's obviously not like a one dude standing on top process. But the thing about this regulation is that we're not Bitcoin. As much as I want to be a Bitcoin some days, and I do, because it would be much faster to travel, let me tell you, uh, <laughs> we don't have that luxury of not having that regulatory framework. And so it's a boring topic. I hate talking about it. But the reality of it is, is that anything that moves us closer towards being able to actually use this without having our country pile a whole bunch of inconveniences and irritations on top of us, potentially legal threats, because these are laws you know, that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so some people yeah. don't do it. but Ultimately, that's a risk that they wind up taking. And it's stupid that that's a risk. I mean, that's the thing about it. It's just so stupid that it is a risk to spend money buying a cup of coffee and then to have a legal risk as a result of having done just a normal transaction that involves nobody in a negative way and doesn't impact the government negatively at all. But that's the reality in which we kind of exist. And so I, for one, at least, am happy to see us moving in these directions. Jonathan, to your point, I completely agree. There's zero chance that we actually see this Yang approach come into practice just based on how the political season is looking. But Man, maybe the idea nice. gets out there and it gets heard by some people and maybe that moves the conversation forward. Sure. And I mean, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Things happen slowly in politics, of course, <laughs> you know, as slow as people claim the protocol changes in Bitcoin happen, they also happen much, much slower in the government realm. So I guess if the idea is getting put forward, maybe people will find out about it and that could be a good thing. Aside from the personal risk that you mentioned, Adam, I agree with that, of course, but also like imagine how frustrating it is if you have an idea for a wallet or something or a company or something that will make people's lives better through software and through the use of this amazing technology, but you can't do it because of some regulatory issue. That must be really frustrating and that grinds to a halt economic activity that could benefit people. So I'd like to see entrepreneurs be able to realize their dreams too and build things that make people's lives better. It is wholly selfish and self-serving for me to say this, but I completely agree with you because I have felt so stymied by regulations over the last four years while trying to bring things into reality. The technology yeah. problems are very solvable, but these regulatory issues are just beyond the scope of a technology company or even an entire technology industry. And that really, again, for me is where it comes back to is that when we have clearer laws that actually make sense, it's easier to be compliant. And that's true at an individual level. And it's also true at an entrepreneurial level, too. And that's really the thing that's been lacking. I can't even tell you how many projects I know that have moved out of the U.S. and are in the process of moving out of the U.S. just because nothing's changed and because that's yeah. not true everywhere else. Yeah, and that's disappointing. I mean, you have firsthand experience with this as an entrepreneur, but me as a consumer mostly, I feel disappointed about that too because, you know, I want to use these products that make my life better yeah. or at least have the opportunity. So I got four quick questions that I just want real snappy answers from everybody from, and then we'll move on to our next topic. Do you think that tax clarity would lead to an increase in use of Bitcoin as a payment system? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so too. I think that one's pretty clear. Okay. If so, will more businesses incentivize customers to pay in Bitcoin? 
Do we think that that there's a connection there too? Uh, yes, I do. Well, I also think that we don't actually have businesses that accept Bitcoin with the rare exception of an overstock. What they do is they integrate BitPay and they never touch crypto and they just take dollars. And so I think even in the bare minimum amount of vendor adoption that we have in crypto, there's this illusion that they actually take Bitcoin. They accept Bitcoin that then gets immediately converted into dollars and they only touch dollars. And I think a lot of that has to do with all of this nonsense around, great, now I have to file securities cap gains and losses over this retail payment. And so I think one of the most transformative things about that could even be hidden from most people's perceptions. I would like to look at the percentage of vendors on BitPay that would actually elect to start actually receiving Bitcoin. Yeah, but I would argue actually that it doesn't matter if they receive Bitcoin or if they receive dollars. The merchant is still paying fewer fees than if they accept a, a credit card payment. It they matters if you think incentive. that using Bitcoin matters. <laughs> like getting people to have sovereign asset holdings and move over to the Bitcoin world is a good in and of itself. Yeah, I'm just saying that merchants still do have an incentive to want their customers to pay with crypto, even if they don't receive crypto in the end. And also, I saw recently an article that said BitPay processed a billion dollars worth of payments through their payment system last year. And so I was kind of surprised to read that because I don't see much commerce activity going on with Bitcoin payments, but apparently it is going on maybe quietly and it seems to be higher than I expected. So if there's a de minimis exemption from filing these capital gains taxes for the customer, for the payer, that could only increase the usefulness of cryptocurrency for small merchant transactions. Yeah, I think the differences between your positions basically are that the question is, does it actually matter if they keep the Bitcoin that they get or that they deal with it kind of natively or is it just important that they accept it in kind of a broad sense? I think I fall more with Stephanie on this side. I used to be a lot more hardcore about the idea of everybody kind of using cryptocurrency. But now I just think it's important that we use it in a way that makes things better. This is the difference between two different functions of cryptocurrency, which is one is that it's a store of value. And that's what merchants are utilizing when they accept Bitcoin for a good or service and then keep it. They're using it as a store of value versus a system of payment. And this exempting de minimis transactions, this makes Bitcoin or cryptocurrency a better method of payment. And that's the function of Bitcoin that this is helpful to. Okay, so regarding the new question on top of the IRS 1040 form, do you think that that question about virtual currency will lead more people to want to learn about it? Or is it just like something that everybody ignores except for people like us? And then we're like, ah, do I say yes or no? I think if they haven't been motivated to learn about it by now, the IRS form is probably not going to be the first place they learn about it. So no, I don't think it'll lead people to research it. Maybe like a panicked Google search of like, what happens if I say yes to this question? (laughs) What list do I end up on? Yeah, I don't think it's going to matter either. I don't think that's where people are kind of getting their information about this stuff. Okay, so what about Andrew Yang's crypto ideas? Do we think that those make it any further than his campaign whenever that winds up ending? Because he has successfully pushed, and I thought it was very effective in the debates. He successfully pushed the idea of the freedom dividend, which is a form of universal basic income. He really did kind of succeed in pushing that into the conversation, whether it stays there. But I mean, definitely there are people talking about it. I've been hearing about this for actually a couple of years now and the idea of universal basic income. Andrew Yang's not the only one talking about it. Some other Silicon Valley people are. But I think he's been the first one to be a presidential candidate that pushes it into the political debates. And so, yeah, I think it's successful that he's getting it into the dialogue. He's getting the idea out there, even if his campaign ends, when it ends, if it ends. Maybe this is going to leave a lasting impression on people's minds hey, we need to do something about this. This is a problem. The thing that it always reminded me of is the fair tax, which is a very libertarian concept. But one of the things that it has is this idea of a prebate where the government proactively sends you money based on the poverty line or slightly above the poverty line. Which is why some libertarians thought this was very anti-libertarian, actually, because it essentially makes everyone a recipient of government assistance. The fair tax has this idea of a prebate, like you mentioned, Adam, where everyone just gets a check from the government. It's kind of almost like a universal basic income, 
but it's meant to be a rebate on the sales tax that you will pay on everything. And there's just a flat 10% or 9% sales tax on literally everything. And then there's a prebate to cover the necessities that you have to buy like food or something. And nothing is exempt from this tax, but you get the prebate to kind of make up for the necessities of life. And so some people thought this was a libertarian idea. Other people thought it wasn't very libertarian because it gets everybody on the government payroll, (laughs) essentially. It's true, but I think the argument in favor of it being very libertarian is that it eliminates the idea of an income tax, which means that all of the tax reporting that we do now and the entire process around that as a yearly kind of ritual goes away entirely because we're just paying the tax at the point of sale. Yeah, and imagine how much compliance costs that would save if you didn't have to spend time filling out these forms every year. But also there were a lot of people who were kind of skeptical that what might happen if this goes through is that we end up with a sales tax on everything and they never eliminate the income tax. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anything that simple would ever occur because the nature of government is to make the rules so complex such that it applies to different people in different ways at different times. Mm -hmm. And the moment that people propose something that uniformly applies to everyone as first level actors with the same rules in the same way consistently that doesn't change is the day that you're describing a blockchain and not a government. (laughs) All right, so for the second half of today's show, we're talking about scams, and not necessarily crypto scams. We'll talk about crypto scams another time. We're just talking about scams in general. And this theory that producer Ned brought to me a couple of weeks ago basically suggesting that there's this window of time where a technology or an opportunity or something like that basically makes it possible for it to be misappropriated or misapplied in such a way so that you can steal people's money while they think that you're actually helping them. This is a scam. There are lots of examples of it. Ponzi schemes, pyramid schemes, multi-level marketing. We're going to talk about a couple of these things today, mostly outside of the context of cryptocurrency, because there are some really interesting examples out there. But there is one, I don't even want to call it a cryptocurrency scam. We're talking about OneCoin here. OneCoin is one of the biggest scams in cryptocurrency, and it didn't actually ever use a cryptocurrency. I first heard about this from my sister, I believe, who's not particularly interested in cryptocurrency. Years back, a friend had told her about OneCoin and told her that she should invest in it because it was like Bitcoin. And so she knows that I'm interested in all of this stuff. And so she asked me about it and I looked into it and it was the first time I'd seen it. And I was like, I don't think this is a blockchain or anything, actually. This just looks like a scam, I guess. And as time went on, most recently, there have been several people who are involved at a very high level who are either in jail now, are currently being tried in various courts around the world, or have disappeared and are just on the run. That's a red flag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely at this point, it's a red flag. But for years, this was a very, very popular scam that basically allowed these people to take the provenance of cryptocurrency and the excitement around Bitcoin and other things and tell people who really didn't know any better yeah, this is the same thing, except it's much better because you can buy it with dollars. Just give us money. And it didn't matter. You know, there was no regulatory compliance kind of that they needed to follow down any sort of rabbit hole. There was no, you know, challenge giving them money because they would take money any way you want. And there was no technical complexity to participating because there was no blockchain involved. None of the complexities that we actually have in this industry applied to those people because it wasn't actually a cryptocurrency. So when it comes to scams, whether you're talking about cryptocurrency or anywhere else, there are three kind of main points. One, Ponzi schemes and other types of scams like this thrive in disrupted spaces with uncertainty, with poor credentialing, and with poorly understood complexity, which is the definition of cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin. Because credentialing is all about who should I trust? And in these flat structures, there's no directory of people who are actually legitimate in the space. And often what happens is the people who are most legitimate spend their time working on projects. And the people who are not legitimate, they spend a lot of time boosting their credentials and then going out and selling themselves effectively to people. And in some cases, it's giant scams. And in other cases, you know, we've seen many cases where it's just somebody on Twitter who got a bunch of people to trust them because they felt like they were a good investment and could manage their investment since they didn't want to manage it. And then that person actually was running a Ponzi scheme in the background. 
So the cryptocurrency space definitely has these attributes. And then the underlying appeal of Ponzi scams and Bitcoin comes from the mythology of redemption, getting something for nothing, right? The genie in the bottle. I think that in cryptocurrency, we very firmly established that with Bitcoin because the people who purchase those Bitcoin or mine those Bitcoin before they were a dollar, well, they've definitely seen sort of that something for nothing, something that they felt like was just, oh, I'm going to throw my computer at this for a couple of hours or in my spare time or whatever. And if they held on to that, then the appreciation has just been absolutely phenomenal beyond anything we've really ever seen outside of a scam. <laughs> The other thing that a lot of Ponzi schemes have is this notion of in-group affiliation. So it's this idea that you have a common affiliation to the person, you're part of the same group, or you share the same values. So a lot of cultures that are very family-oriented, or a lot of cultures that are like church-based groups, and things where you self-select on the basis of common values and shared goals, tend to have the most Ponzi schemes spread like wildfire. Because you get someone who pretends to share those values or takes advantage of that demonstration of shared values, irrespective of if it's true or not, to then go after people's adversarial checks over, well, this isn't a scam or this isn't bad or I trust them in this way. So ergo, I can apply that trust to this thing. And a lot of the impact statements about blockchain and statements as to how it could affect change, I think are true and possible, but provide a phenomenal cloud or fog that then truly horrible people can use to signal that type of value and interest with, pretend they're a part of that community or share that type of value, and then use that trust to then destroy and take advantage of people who think that they're pursuing that vision, that goal, and that aspiration, but really just intended to scam them the whole time. And so it's almost to our own detriment, the core belief and values that were at the heart of Bitcoin and the resonance that it has at some point when you achieve enough adoption gets co-opted by people who don't in any way share that, but use it as the excuse to predate. And a lot of that's what happened manifested in one coin, but also in a lot of 2017. Yeah, I think the best thing you can do to defend against this is educate yourself about cults, educate yourself about psychopaths and narcissists who co-opt the mechanisms of trust that we all have in order to get personal gain from it and recognize when those dynamics are playing out in whatever community you're part of, including the cryptocurrency community, because it pretty much happens in every community after a while. <laughs> Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for a quick sponsored minute. Matt, Purse's mission since 2014 has been making Bitcoin useful. How are you guys doing that? Thanks, Adam. Well, with Purse.io, you can buy anything on Amazon using your Bitcoin, just like real money. Since 2014, we've saved Purse users millions of dollars. And this year, we have a new Chrome extension that you can add to your browser. So whenever you're shopping on Amazon, any Amazon product page will have a new little button that pops up and you can add that product to your purse shopping cart instead of your Amazon shopping cart and buy that item with your Bitcoin, usually for huge discounts, 15 to 20% or more. You know, since we recently started selling Let's Talk Bitcoin t-shirts, I've noticed actually that a lot of people, a surprising number of people are using credit cards to pay for those instead of Bitcoin. And when I've asked them, it's, they say it's because the value of spending it isn't worth it relative to the difficulty of, you know, getting it out of cold storage and all of that. So it seems like the discount is actually a somewhat important part of really giving people a reason to spend Bitcoin. Yeah, we find offering discounts to Bitcoin holders incentivizes them to bust out that hot wallet and actually use their Bitcoin like it's real money. To start saving today, visit purse.io or see the links in the show notes. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Why just send the crypto and blockchain memes you love to your friends when you can wear them? Find your favorites at the online A. Antonop shop. Brought to you by Bitcoin and Open Blockchain's educator, Andreas M. Antonopoulos. From t-shirts and sweatshirts to beanies, baby bibs, onesies, and more, your favorite memes have come to life. Browse the Antonop shop today. Pay in crypto ships worldwide. Shop now at aantonop.io slash shop. That's A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P dot I-O slash shop.
Stephanie, why don't you take us through the basics of multi-level marketing schemes? All right. And this is by producer Ned. Thanks, Ned. An introduction to Ponzi, aka MLM schemes. Ponzi or pyramid schemes are investment frauds where investors are promised high returns in exchange for their money. Sound like an ICO yet? The returns are usually so high that no traditional investment could support these returns. So instead, the investments of later investors are used to compensate earlier investors. Under this model, even if confidence remained high in this scheme, it would eventually fail once over half of the population invests. There would now be a shortage of new investors to compensate the old investors, and the scheme would become insolvent. So basically, they can't work in the long term, no matter what. Right. <laughs> Multi-level marketing companies such as Herbalife and Amway have taken this obviously fraudulent model and attempted to legitimize it using jargon and clever lobbying to get some legal legitimacy in the United States. MLM companies usually sell a product at a ridiculous markup, and investors must buy this product to participate in the MLM. They then sell this product downstream to downstream representatives, new investors, and receive some income from their downstream investors' sales. If an investor fails to meet some sales target, they are reclassified as a customer so that the MLM can legitimately say, we do have end customers. <laughs> yeah, and this is called building your downline, right, yeah. in MLM jargon. MLM also has a lot of cult-like aspects to it sometimes. There's often like this motivational aspect to it of achieving your dreams and like they're selling a lifestyle if you buy into being a distributor and then try to get more people in your downline on the bottom. So, I mean, like, it's not to say that all companies that use multi-level marketing are scams. The kind of example that is from my life is I used uh, Cutco knives and I sold Cutco knives back when I was in high school. And Cutco mm. is this American company that makes different types of cutlery and knives and things like that. And the reality is, is that it's kind of multi-level marketing. Were but you the, knocking on people's doors? I wasn't knocking on people's doors, but I was using my personal network to find people who were interested in seeing a presentation. And then if I sold them knives, I got some money. And also if I brought in people who would then also sell knives, then I would get some of their money that they would make. But in that case, it was attached to a product that was actually highly useful and good quality. And I think that that's a differentiating factor here too. Did when you you're have to buy the inventory before you could sell it? Or no, were you selling inventory that you didn't own? That's a good point. I did not have to buy the inventory before I sold it. Okay. To me, that's the big differentiator. I think that's a good example. Like, sure, there are some companies that utilize multi-level marketing tactics that aren't scams and aren't fraudulent. However, if you see these kind of tactics being used, it is a potential red flag, especially if there's things going on like, you have to buy the inventory and buy in before you can sell it. Or there's culty retreats where you're talking about your childhood and things like that to participate in selling <laughs> this product <laughs> and that kind of thing. So yeah. it's a red flag. It could be a red flag for sure. So if an investor fails to meet the sales targets, sometimes they reclassify them as a customer. And then the MLM can say, see, we have customers, even though it's mandatory to join the organization. All right, so continuing on. The difference between Ponzi and MLM is one of outright fraud, lies, run with the money, Ponzi, and more corporate, lie to your face but provide a small print contract that legitimizes the exploitation, MLM. The MLM model is weirdly hard to kill. Amway and Herbalife are developed, and some would say respected companies at this point. How do they do it when their investors have a 97% rate of losing money on their schemes? The answer is complicated. This article is quite long, but a simple breakdown of the psychology of influence model that seems to fit nicely with MLM sales tactics. There's another article here that describes the cult-like isolation of MLM investors, which leaves them in a social environment constructed by the MLM to make leaving frightening. And all of this will be linked in the show notes with all of the kind of text of what we're talking about here, as well as the articles that we're referencing. I would summarize it as, how do they do it? They create a culty environment yeah. that makes people scared to leave and scared to speak out about it and convinces people that they're really doing something of value, changing the world, and convinces people that they're not part of a scam. Well, also, the other thing that they do, which is also one of the really bothersome problems I have with people in this space, when I see it present where it's happening a lot, 
is as a psychology, they always make you feel like you're the problem. So any failure or failure to manifest that occurs within their framework is because you, the individual, are a failure, not that the structure or the system doesn't work. And so they have this purity test, and then your failure to adhere to it or manifest it is your moral failing and your functional failing and never a structural failing. And so it's actually one of the problems that I think happens in blockchain is as a community, we have all these values and everyone wants to be a part of changing the world, but also this notion of not only are we going to say, hey, all these things you have to morally do and if you want to be a true blockchainer, if you want to pass the purity test, but if anything goes wrong as a component of structural failing, we're also going to entirely say that was your fault because you should have done better. So a lot of this, like, not your keys, not your coins, but simultaneously, it's really, really hard to 100% always apply correctly. But if anything goes wrong, it's no structural or inherent limitation in blockchain, but your moral failing as an individual to have properly done something (laughs) is very analogous to the structures of how cults predate on people. And I think that the more we cross-correlate with that little construct, is where you then open yourself to the other proper genuine components of fraud because a layman or a person who isn't wise to the ways of blockchain can't distinguish between contexts in which that's just the basis of the tech or when someone's pretending it's the basis of the tech in order to defraud them to pass through that failure check. Okay, continuing on. Basically, humans have a need to trust, to belong to a community, and to feel valued. Scams. I use the word to describe MLMs and Ponzi's, meet some of their target's psychological needs for authority, simplicity, community, and an appeal to adventure and success. Then provide financial incentives to cannibalize their victims' own organic social networks, friends and family, and fold them into the scam as well. So not only do they hook you, they get you to hook all your friends and family. (laughs) This explains why scams like OneCoin raged through tightly knit communities like some Muslim immigrant communities in England, and why people seem so hesitant to leave the scam once they've invested, i.e. there is a high psychological cost to admitting you were scammed. That's an important point. There is a high psychological cost to admitting you were scammed. And Adam, it was really interesting what you said about the Cutco knives. Not that I'm saying that's a scam at all. I think I've probably used those knives, I think. I've never sold them, but you said... I still use them and I sold them in high school. You're bought in. Yeah, well, I mean, they're good <laughs> knives. I mean, like thinking about that, I did have to buy some going in. I had to buy my sample kit so uh, that I could show them off. And like, that's what I'm still winding up using. And I actually did wind up buying more because I really liked them. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. like, I don't know if that matters. It's a really good question, you know, of whether or not the utility of a product or perceived value of a product. Because the thing I think that characterizes a lot of stuff like Herbalife and things like that is that people wind up with garages full of this stuff. It's not something that they're ever going to use themselves. And these things have expiration dates too. So again, Mm -hmm. getting back to that, it's your fault because you didn't sell it fast enough, you know? Like it's just a bad situation that a lot of people wind up finding themselves in. So this is a bigger topic, unfortunately, than we have time to cover today. We're going to pick this up as a segment two of the next episode of the show. And you can find more information about all of this stuff. Like I said, we'll be posting the text of the document that we're working off of, which was produced by producer Ned in the show notes for this show. And in general, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. We will be back next week with more discussion.